Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about medicine and agriculture that focuses on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today's episode is a really important one. We've all read about dicamba. Dicamba is apparently this herbicide that's causing all kinds of problems, at least as it's been reported inside the news. And weeding through this, weeding through this. Um, (laughs) uh, You're finding lots of stuff about uh, it's all about lawsuits. It doesn't seem like science is taking a front seat necessarily and it's really hard to know how to talk about this and what is happening and what's not. How do we sort this out? So I got an expert. Today's expert is Karen Corrigan. Karen Corrigan is a independent agronomist with with McGillicuddy Corrigan Agronomics and she's with us today. Hi Karen. Hello. Yeah, so could you tell us a little bit more about your particular job, maybe? Start out by telling us about what you do with uh, as an independent agronomist. Um, I work directly with growers, so basically I kind of take the, the void left by the extension service in a lot of areas, and I serve as a third-party independent and help growers make decisions on their fertility, their herbicides, pesticides, and anything relating to their crop production practices. But I work with the growers individually, one-on-one. And you're serving people in nine states, I think you said? Yep. Most of our clients are in Illinois and Iowa, but then we branch into all the surrounding states up to North Dakota. And you're mostly doing, well, obviously, agronomic crops, things like uh, soybeans and corn, or what, what else do you deal with? The majority of our growers are corn and soybeans. A few of the farther north ones do have some fl- sunflowers and uh, dry beans, but the majority are mostly corn and soybean growers. And so you don't really work for any particular seed company or chemical company or anything like that, right? No, I get paid directly by the farmers that I consult with. Okay, so that's really important because I think there's a lot of, uh, when we read online about the situation, um, a lot of accusations and overlays about what's going on and who's, you know, twisting whose arm and all that good stuff. So why don't we start out just by talking about what's happening. Let's start out with uh, dicamba. All right, so what is dicamba? 
So dicamba is not a new herbicide. I believe it was actually labeled in like 1967. However, over the years, it's had different formulations trying to decrease the volatility and help it to mix better with other chemicals. So it's been around a long time and it's just had minimal changes since then. What's different now is that they have developed um, crops that are resistant to dicamba because in general, dicamba kills all broadleaves but went and sprayed directly on them. So they've changed both cotton and soybean to be resistant to dicamba. And that's what's come out in the last couple of years. And that's why we're starting to see some issues. And maybe let me fill in a little bit for the listeners. So dicamba, actually, you're right. It was 67 that this stuff was really registered for use, but it's an herbicide of the oxen mimic family. So it looks like oxen to the plant, which is a plant hormone that, um, that inspires growth. And this stuff goes back way into probably the 1920s. I mean, it's it, at least in terms of its uh, uh, discovery and its use in plants. And it's an oxen mimic that looks a little bit like um, it's in the same class as things like 2,4-D. That 2,4-D is one of these, uh, we always say a phenoxy acetic acid base. This one is based on, on, on a, a little different chemistry. The bottom line is is that it mimics a hormone that makes a plant basically, as we always say, grow itself to death. And so when you look at a lot of the injury that you're seeing, it is reminiscent of an auxin-based response. So I'll just fill it in. Oh, and the resistance. The resistance that's put into the plants, in the soybeans and cotton, has come from a gene found in a soil bacterium that can break down dicamba. So it's now in the plant, which makes the plant immune to the chemical. And so this is where we have to start with the problem, is that companies started to make dicamba-resistant crops. And so why did they have to do that, Karen? What was the motivation? Well, it's a lot less expensive, and there's less hoops to jump through if you try and get a crop um, labeled as opposed to a new chemical. So it basically goes to money and speed of delivery. And uh, the fact that you uh, have dicamba, but what about glyphosate? I thought that was the big weed control chemical. Well, unfortunately, that's kind of ran its course. Um, We didn't have a lot of stewardship practices in place, and some people used it constantly and consistently, and um, we just had a lot of particularly harder to control broadleaf weeds that have become resistant to it. So specifically your water hemp and your palmer amaranth in the south and mare's tail, which never never really controlled that well to begin with, but it also doesn't do much for it at all anymore. So we've kind of run its course. Unfortunately, we should have you know, had more stewardship practices in place and continued to use the residual chemicals. But unfortunately, it was just a cheap option and a lot of people jumped on it without thinking about what the long-term consequences might be. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, we that when glyphosate came out, it was really funny to see the company say, this is a, such a great mechanism, it'll never have any problems. And all of us looked at each other and said, you know, plants will evolve around this pretty quick. Exactly. And uh, what, what should have happened is you should have had glyphosate and dicamba and 2,4-D resistance all released at the same time and rotated them or whatever, right? Is that kind of... Well, the, and they should not have stopped using the residual soil chemistry either. They should have continued to have those in both the pre-emerge and in the post-emerge treatment. But unfortunately, those products were very expensive. And so Roundup was relatively cheap in accordance with those. So most people jumped on the most inexpensive 
uh, practice and went with that. All right, so now we have this issue with dicamba-resistant crops, so soybeans and cotton. Farmers are applying this stuff. They're applying dicamba, but actually they were, as I understand it, they were applying the dicamba before the dicamba was really appropriate to be deployed. And now, um, so they were using it on the crops even when the company said don't use it on the crops. This was maybe 2015 or 16. Right. And I believe that was more in the areas where, because cotton came out first. And so I believe it was more in the areas that had cotton to begin with. They assumed that the EPA was going to approve the chemical in time for the growing season. So they went ahead and sold the crops with the resistant traits. But then the EPA had put it off um, and was still doing some due diligence looking at things. And so the seeds were already out there in the farmer's hands, but they had nothing they could legally apply over the top to it. Yeah, but some of them did it anyway. (laughs) Apparently, um, particularly in Arkansas, yes. Yeah, so they were using a lot of the chemical before it was really approved for use. And as far as I understand, the droplet size was wrong, and there was a lot of drift problems back in the beginning when the seeds were first introduced. Well, because they were using the older formulations like Clarity and Banville, which don't have any of the newer formulation low vapor drift, low um, vapor grip technology. And maybe that's something else I should have asked you about earlier, but what is the issue of herbicide drift? Well, there's different types, and when you're talking about dicamba, it's not the same. With Roundup, we had physical drift, which basically means while you were spraying, the wind was in the wrong direction or the wind gusted, and it directly went onto a crop that it could damage. But with dicamba, we had the physical drift, but we also had what's called volatility, which is unique to different types of herbicides, mainly dicamba, and to a different extent, 2,4-D. Yeah, and that's just where the molecules themselves kind of atomize and just go into the atmosphere, just like if it was opening a bottle of perfume. The molecules just saturate the air. Is is that kind of where we're going? Correct. And they move, in, in some cases, they moved in inversions. In some cases, even the smaller droplets then could move with the wind. So there's a lot of I guess, arguing at this point what has and hasn't happened with volatility. Most of your university weed scientists have proven that there is volatility, particularly with these new products, but the manufacturers are still holding firm that they did not see any of those in their tests that they have run. What is the major problem going on now in soybeans and in other crops? I think the biggest problems we're talking about are in soybeans in Arkansas and in Missouri, if, if I'm understanding this right. There were a lot of cases in those, but Illinois also had a a fair amount of cases of drift and volatility issues, too. So it's much more widespread than just the Arkansas, Missouri that you hear about. Tennessee had several cases, and I had growers in Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, and North Dakota who all had damage due to dicamba movement. And I guess the uh, big problem that that we understand it is that you can plant these dicamba-resistant plants, but if your neighbor isn't growing dicamba-resistant plants, or if you say on your on your farm you have a mixture of the dicamba resistance and the, uh, just say, glyphosate resistance, that you're even having drift and volatility issues within a farm. Is that kind of accurate? Correct. Correct. Um, so we have different herbicide traits that we can look at in soybeans in particular. We have the Liberty Link system, the dicamba system, which is called the Extend. We also have the Roundup Ready system still that is just Roundup resistant. And then we also, particularly in Illinois, we have a lot of non-GMO soybeans because we have a lot of 
and in Iowa too, we have a lot of um, elevators which segregate those and take those out for different um, food food manufacturing and things like that. So there's four different types of systems that people can actually plant. And for those who didn't go with the extend system, um, in some areas we've seen a fair amount of damage. Um, maybe maybe it's a little bit of a tangent, but what kind of weed control do they use on non-GMO soybeans? Um, so your conventional herbicides. So they'll use some pre-emerge um, chemicals as far as, you know, different ones would be like Authority, Sulfentrazone, Valor, which would be Flumioxazin, even the old ones like Prowl, the Pendimethalin. And then post-emerge, they'll come back most often with um, a combination of like a Flexstar and then a grass herbicide. It's, so it's trading a different suite of herbicides then, but just because it's not right. traded seed. Okay. So the non-GMO or the conventional actually can be sprayed on any soybeans, but the Liberty can only be on Liberty Link. The Extend, the Max, and Engenia can only be on the Extend, and then the Roundup can only be on the Roundup Ready. Yeah, so the uh, Liberty Link is glufosinate resistance, which is a little bit, which is similar to the glyphosate resistance, in it, not in chemistry, but uh, in terms of the trait and about the time it came out. And so why, why don't they just rotate those two? Um, some haven't have but it took a longer to get the liberty link approved um i know we were working on it in the mid 90s but it it took a longer to get approved and when it came out the chemistry was also more expensive and so it wasn't as appealing at the beginning as it was as the glyphosate was okay so that's what we'll come back in just a moment we're talking with karen corrigan who's an independent agronomist with mcgillicuddy corrigan agronomics Uh, We'll be back in just a minute. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, we're excited to deliver the exciting stories of how DNA-based technologies are providing new solutions for people all over the planet. We're learning more about who we are as a species, the life around us, and how we can produce better food for more people with sensitivity to this big stupid rock in space that sustains us. This podcast is funded 100% by Kevin Folta and comes to you free each week for your listening pleasure. We actively turn away advertisers that could defray the costs of this enterprise because that would simply reinforce the beliefs of the whistleblowing merchants of doubt that believe education is simply a tentacle of corporate conspiracy. You can help by writing a review on iTunes, tell your friends, write a review on a blog. Most of all, share the beautiful stories of science that you hear each week. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today, talking with Karen Corrigan from McGillicuddy Corrigan Agronomics about dicamba. And there's been a lot of talk about dicamba in the news. And actually, Karen, I've gotten, I would say, a dozen emails or things online, tweets or whatever, saying, can you please have somebody come on and talk about what's up with dicamba? So thank you so much for joining me. This is really great. And one of the other big issues on this has been why is there so much um, controversy that's happening? It seems like if farmers are seeing very clear symptoms of herbicide damage from drift or volatility, and it, you know it's it's like a signature. You have like a cupping of soybean leaves, just a very clear oxenic response. And 
Why is there any controversy around this? Well, it's come from several different avenues. Um, it wasn't all drift and it wasn't all volatility. We had a lot that had tank contamination issues. Um, we had the, the actual physical drift, which physical drift, you can really tell where it came from. It's usually the field next to it and you see a clear pattern. The problem that we had is that there were whole fields that were damaged and there was no there was no drift pattern. There was no... With tank contamination, you generally see dead soybeans at the very beginning. And as the sprayer sprays out, it seems to get better. Um, but these were whole fields with no distinguishable patterns. And then when you try and figure out who sprayed the dicamber products in the area, some of them had to go more than a mile to find where this product came from. So it's, it's kind of tricky nailing down exactly who sprayed and what, what field it drifted on. It's not clear cut. Yeah, then a lot of it has to do with weather and everything else too, right? I mean, yeah, anything can be picked up in a in the wind after it volatilizes, but then also we had some issues with inversion, um, where the inversions picked up and moved across great distances and then dissipated, you know, in the morning, but they moved great distances without damaging and then just damaged where they dissipated. So, so how how widespread is the problem? I mean, have, are you seeing this? frequently or is this something that's just here and there um it depends on where you are the region is very in some regions there were a lot of extend that was used and in other regions like so northern illinois and wisconsin there weren't as many used because the year before the yields just weren't as comparable as the other systems in the trials the year before um, in central illinois you saw a lot in between the bloomington decatur champaign area and so that was an area where the the beans yield-wise the year before were a little bit more comparable in the trials. So it was kind of designated regionally based on where those um, soybeans without the dicamba had done in the prior year's yield trials. And, you know, we kind of neglected to mention this part, and it's somewhat important, I guess, is uh, who is currently marketing dicamba-resistant seeds and maybe who plans to roll that out in the near future? Well, there are the major companies. So Monsanto has um, some extend seed, but some of the more regional companies, you know, also can buy that technology from Monsanto and sell it um, under their own umbrellas. So there, there are other smaller regional companies that have sold the technology this past year too. Yeah, I think uh, BASF has one in the in the works too. Well, BASF has a chemical product, but they don't have the seeds. So ah, their chemical okay. product is sprayed on Monsanto's seeds. I see. So so it's in maybe a different uh, droplet formulation, that kind of thing, to decrease volatilization. Is that kind of the plan? So there are three products, dicamba products, that can be used over the top of soybeans. Extendamax from Monsanto, Ingenia from BASF, and Fexapan from the DuPont company. So the DuPont... The Fexapan and the Extendamax have vapor grip technology, whereas the Ingenia is actually a different salt. I see. So basically what you have, and this just maybe is what's complicating the issue, is here you have uh, farmers with damage on their farms and three companies pointing their fingers at each other saying, not us. To an extent, yes. Um, and also, you know, it moves so far that it may not, even if you had somebody next to you who sprayed it, that may not be what damaged your crop if it picked up and moved overnight in an inversion. So it's not very easy to to really 
distinguish exactly who did it unless they were the only one in the county. (laughs) (laughs) So, So. but what, and this is really kind of the, the sad part about this is that you read so many different things and whether you read what comes from the companies or what you read from on the ground extension people who seem like they really got it together. Um, I really do trust the extension folks on this more than I'm willing to trust the companies or think about the company's uh, points of view. Well, I will say that not all the companies are acting in the same manner. Okay. So I've heard good good things from those from who had used the Fexapan from DuPont and had issues where the company really listened and was trying to help figure out what went wrong. Um, BASF, initially, they weren't so friendly, but uh, over the course of the summer, as things got to be more um, more clear, I guess you'd say, they seemed to come around and be a lot more um, amicable. Um, so I don't want to throw everyone under the same bus with this whole dicamba issue. So Okay, well, that's, that's why I wanted to have you on, because I'm getting, uh, you know, when you read online... You read so you know, but you look read the news and you read what's happening from extension people on their websites and blogs, and then you read what people are saying. Like as a farmer, you know, it, it's because there's even like conspiratorial edges to this that companies are coming onto farms and saying don't talk about it, or that they're somehow getting to extension agents and saying you better keep it quiet. I mean, is, what is there any potential validity to any of that? Not in the way that you're saying it, not to that extent. I mean, obviously, there's been some subtle intimidation, and there's actually been some outright questioning of integrity of the extension weed scientists, which I find disheartening. I mean, they obviously work for the people, and I, I like you, believe what they have to say as opposed to some of the company propaganda, but um, it's been unfortunate that one of the manufacturers in particular has really tried to undermine the actual weed scientists, and then you have companies like Bayer that come out who don't necessarily yet have a dog in this fight, and they stand up for the extension weed scientists and you know their research. So it's been, I, I don't know, there's been a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of farmers who honestly believed that it would not move. And so when it did move, they just couldn't fathom that that, that actually happened and they may be the cause of it. When you're a f- farmer who's been spraying your entire life with products that don't volatilize it almost seems unfathomable that they would you know it doesn't seem like something in your experience so you you doubt it right and we do have other dicamba products that we use later in the season in corn but that's um, they're at a different concentration and also they're earlier in the corn so the damage Generally, when you damage soybeans in the vegetative stage, not much happens, and you may even see a yield increase. But when you start to damage them in the reproductive stages, that's where we get to start to have problems, and particularly with yield loss. But that's kind of counter to what we know about how this stuff is applied, especially glyphosate. I mean, it's all used to be very early before these plants were reproducing. Is that different with dicamba? No, the the dicamba cutoff is R1. However, in 2017, with the weather situation we had, um, there were so many late planted soybeans that that kind of factored into the issue too. So people were spraying the product later than expected just because they ended up planting later than expected. So just to kind of put a bow on this, I know we we kind of got away from the idea about what the extension agents were saying. I am in trying to to prep for today, tried to contact quite a few of them, and I got really short little answers that said, um, 
thanks for the opportunity, but can't do it right now. Have a good time, you know. <laughs> and it, it, I'm sure some of them were just exhausted. Um, I know one of them. <laughs> had personally told me that he was going to move to Alaska for 2018 because they didn't grow soybeans there. So, I, you know, it's probably that and probably all the other things we talked about because it, it, it was very polite, you know, but it was one of these, just a kind of the feeling I got was the feeling in, in being kind of in their shoes in some ways, being somebody who's going out and simply telling the truth and reporting what I'm seeing and then catching hell for doing it. But, yeah, and especially in this area where now there's going to be litigation, and you're going to be called as a witness for things that you saw and said. Um, you know, I could right. see why they're so apprehensive. Still, they've still been very upfront and put out their research, you know, through their university extension press releases, and they haven't hid their information. They've been very forthright with it. But yes, as far as the litigation is concerned, I think it's probably better to have that on paper as yes. opposed to just out. <laughs> out and about so right and then you're not speaking and saying something that's taken out of context Context. yeah and so that's where so if we if you had a recommendation to make for people to identify good sources of information who would you don't have to name names but broadly speaking what are some places where someone might look um, I would look at any of the university extension weed scientists. Um, you can look towards the Weed Science Society of America. would have a listing of some of those. Any of your general soybean growing states, any of their extension agronomists, um, they, they have publications. I know the University of Arkansas has a publication. The University of Illinois has the Illinois Pest Management Newsletter. Um, I mean, you can find the actual university information out there in a lot of places, or you can contact your local extension office, too, if you have problems trying to find them. That's great advice. I, I fully agree. I've looked at a lot of the websites and a lot of the states affected and have to say that the extension people are just doing a first-rate job at following up on this, as they usually do, and uh, really appreciate them in this context. And I really appreciate you spending the time because uh, I just kind of wanted to verify what I was thinking. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I really was trusting those folks more than anybody else. And it seems like that's the right decision. Right. And one of the things I just want to point out is there has not been a lot of yield damage in a significant amount of where these places were damaged, but that can re- change from year to year. So we did still have several people that had seven to 10 bushels. We had some, a lot from 20 to 25 bushel losses on this damage. So that's kind of one thing that gets spread around a lot. Well, there was no yield damage. Well, in some cases there wasn't, but in other cases it was pretty significant. So depending on the weather patterns or if it's hot and dry or different areas, you know, that could change next year too. So just because people got scot-free this year doesn't mean it's going to happen again. And so just kind of maybe last question is, where do you see this going in the future? And do you personally feel that a ban may be the most appropriate way to solve the problem? Well, I, I think these cutoff dates that some of the, the states are coming in with are a good idea because that stops the late planted soybeans from being sprayed. I think it depends on the climate, too. There weren't issues in Oklahoma or Kansas or Nebraska, in certain areas of Nebraska where the climate is drier. So I think humidity has a factor. I know Minnesota soybean just made a recommendation not to spray it over 85 degree air temperature. I think that we really need to pay attention more to these temperature inversions. I think they were a big factor this year that we just didn't understand and maybe it wasn't hyped as much as it should have been. And then also for next year, we're going to have a lot better tank cleaning out. That was a major issue this year too. So 
Now, I guess it's uh, maybe another interesting, another good point is is that I was in Kansas earlier this year to watch the eclipse, and drove through a lot of soybean fields, and you could see the ones that used it, this kind of technology and the ones that didn't. That there really was an issue with weeds, and so many of the ones that were potentially, and I don't know the the seeds they used or anything like that, what lines they used, but you could tell the ones that used the dicamba formulation because they would put the you know the the extend thing out there. And, oh, the sign. Yeah, the sign out there. And so you would see such a difference. And so it seems like a technology that could have a place if they can just work out the bugs in the in the volatilization issues. Right. And I've said from the beginning, if they would have focused less on their propaganda and their attacks against the university weed scientists and focused more on, okay, in these two fields where it was both sprayed correctly, what was different? Why did it move in this field and not that field? and figure out what it is. I mean, I've heard that the spray droplet size is an issue. I've heard that the drift retardant um, is an issue. I've heard that, you know, even the slightest bit of AMS still in the tank from a, a mixture before can be an issue. There's so many different factors that may be affecting it. And I just feel like we should have focused on that and trying to make the technology better as opposed to all the infighting. Yeah, so you're thinking like a scientist. Right. <laughs> Damn but, you. I mean, I do want to say, I mean, there are some places where the extend did well and didn't move. and But there are places, particularly in central Illinois, where everything was applied by the label and it still moved. So if the applicator themselves cannot control it, then we can't blame them. Yeah, that's... So we have to figure out what, what, what's, what do we need to do in the tank? What do we need to make sure it's not in the tank? What do we need to do to try and keep this on the fields that it's sprayed? Because everybody should have the right to use the technology they want to use, but all their neighbors should not feel like they have to use a specific technology to protect themselves from their neighbor either. Well, that's what I saw online, actually, was watching some, some news report where actually one of the growers said, I got to switch to this next year just to ensure that I don't get harmed by it. Well, and I think that's why there's such a large amount of acreage in Arkansas where they didn't find the corresponding herbicide sold is because a lot of people felt the need to try and protect themselves. <laughs> Very interesting. I, and I just want to say, too, that just like Roundup Ready, this dicamba technology is not the silver bullet for weed control. We still need to have complex strategies for weed control so that we don't end up losing an important tool like we did with Roundup because we didn't take care of the situation. Ah, uh, here, here. Very good. Well, we, you just talked about the idea that the overuse of glyphosate and not losing this tool. Is there any evidence that there's resistance to dicamba? We have some populations of water hemp in both Champaign and DeWitt County in Illinois, which is kind of the south central southeast central part of illinois that have shown over the past couple of years to have some resistance to dicamba i know one grower in particularly um, sprayed the water hemp when it was less than four inches with one of the new dicamba products and it did not control it and so he sprayed it a second time according to label and it still did not control it so just like any other herbicide there's potential for resistance and so we need to make sure that we keep an eye on these fields and monitor, you know, are we getting a complete control? Are we not? And if not, what's the reasoning? Okay, well, really great advice. I mean, across the board, this has been a really important discussion today, and I really appreciate you being a guest with me today. Could you um, let me know if there's ever anything else that comes up on this? Because I'd love to have you back on to just keep uh, all of this on, on the table and keep it real. 
Sure. And I think over the next couple of months, you know, the EPA has come out with their recommendations for 2018. And now each state has the opportunity to place more restrictions. And over the next couple of months, I think we'll see the states coming out with their specific details. And that'll help, too, when different states adopt different guidelines and then you do the experiment, right? I mean, you actually see what works and what doesn't and be able to look at that with the appropriate uh, meteorological overlays and be able to make a good informed decision about how this stuff really works in practicality. Yes, and if you're going to spray the technology, make sure that you read the label entirely and you know that everything's expected of you. And second to that, make sure that you talk to your liability insurer because we've had some issues where things that we thought would be covered from damage by third parties just aren't being covered this year. So that's something you'll want to check into too because that could leave you open for actual lawsuits from your individual neighbors. Oh, jeez. That's ugly. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you so much for being a guest with me today. If people wanted to know more about you or follow you in social media, where would they find you? I am, my Twitter is at WeedGirl24, and I'm also part of the Girls Talk Ag podcast. And our website would be McGillicuddy, MC Agronomics, which is McGillicuddy Corgan Agronomics.com. And Girls Talk Ag podcast is uh, that one, how often does that one come out? It comes out each week. Okay. so And we've talked about dicamp a couple of times over this growing season yeah i've caught a few episodes here and there with different uh different uh at different times and that's how i ended up finding you ultimately but uh thank you very much for being a guest and hope to have you back on soon thank you very much thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast please send your suggestions for guests comments or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com please write a review on itunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.